The scripture reading for this morning is the book of Second John. Second John, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from the God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Our God and Father, you inspired John to write this little letter for a purpose. And I pray that you would elucidate that purpose now. And I pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives. Oh God, how I pray that we would not just be hearers of the truth this morning, but that we would be doers also, because the power of truth is found in the doing and not just in the hearing, not just in the comprehension. So please help us now, Father, I pray by the Holy Spirit to hear, to understand, and to act according to your goodwill and your good pleasure. Lord, I surrender myself to you. I trust not in myself. I trust not in my preparation. I trust in the Holy Spirit alone, and I pray that you would use me, and more importantly, use your word to guide your sheep. We love you, Father, and we humble ourselves before your word now. In Jesus' great and gracious name, we pray. Amen. This little letter called Second John doesn't get a lot of respect or attention. In 24 years of walking with Christ, listened to lots of sermons, lots of lectures in my life, and I have never heard one single sermon, actually I heard one sermon come from Second John. I've not heard any come from Third John at all. But the pastor that preached a sermon out of Second John, what he did was he took a phrase out of Second John and he preached about something that had nothing to do with what John was talking about at all. So I've never actually heard a sermon about Second John that dealt with what John was trying to say in this little letter. In 24 years, nothing. And probably the same case for you. When you turn your attention to the scholarly literature and you look at what people have to say about John's writings, neither 2nd or 3rd John seem to get much respect there either. 
Here is the words of a man named John B. Polhill, who is a senior professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Solid guy, but here's what he had to say about Second John and Third John. One may well wonder why these two epistles are even included in the canon at all. They are so brief that each could be easily contained on one papyrus leaf, in other words, one piece of paper. From the perspective of edifying material, they have very little to contribute. There is little unique in the teaching of Second John. In fact, the exegete or the interpreter often finds it necessary to refer to First John in order to interpret the second epistle. And so, in other words, Paul Hill's opinion is that 2nd and 3rd John are so short and they don't say anything new that they probably shouldn't even be included in the Bible. And he goes on in his article to conclude that really their only usefulness is that they give us a little bit of background material to understanding 1st John better. I understand his sentiment, I must admit, but I don't agree with him at all. I think he's way off the mark and I think it's a shame that we don't pay more attention to what John did in these letters. He's right to say that John didn't say anything new in 2nd and 3rd John. He's absolutely right about that. But the power and the purpose of a letter is not always in its originality. Sometimes the power and purpose of a letter is in its relevancy to a moment. It's found in being the right word that was spoken into the right moment at just the right time by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the power of a thing is found in its very brevity. Sometimes when you go on and on and on and on, you lose the power of what you're trying to say, right? And so sometimes the power that is packed in the punch has to do with the very brevity of the thing. And so yes, the letter's short. Yes, the letter doesn't add anything new, you know, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that it's not powerful or purposeful. We must be careful with 2nd and 3rd John not to sort of... uh, Uh, marginalize them, if you will, and think that they're just in the Bible taking up space or that they're just a marker between 1 John and Jude and the rest of the New Testament. We have to remember that these are the breathed out words of God that He spoke into the life of the church for a purpose. And our purpose is to discern what that purpose is. Or our, our task is to discern what that purpose is and then to apply that purpose to our lives. And so with that in mind, what I want to do this morning is begin by trying to paint for you a picture of the situation that gave rise to this little letter, and then I just want to work with it with you through it one piece at a time and see if we can't discern what John has to say. And I think that what we'll discover is that the point of this little letter is that the children of God must cling to Jesus Christ in truth and in love. We must not become weary of this message, But for day after day after day, for as long as we live, we must cling to Jesus Christ in truth. We must cling to Jesus Christ in love. I do believe that's the point of this powerful little letter. We don't know much about what happened in the life of the Apostle John after the book of Acts, but we do know from some clues that he left in his letters and from church history that he essentially functioned in the latter years of his life as a pastor to a small group of churches. We're not exactly sure where those churches were, but we think they were probably in the area that they called Asia Minor and that today we call Turkey. But whatever the particulars of his service to the church were, we know that John wrote this little letter to one of the churches with which he had been involved and to which he was a father in the faith. That church looked up to him as a father. He looked upon them as his children in the faith. And they had a great love for one another. The the relationship between John and the church to which he was writing here was not a, a professional kind of relationship. 
where he saw himself as a professional clergyman and them as his constituents or his clients or the lay people, the members of the church or what have you. He loved them and they loved him. They knew each other well and they had a lot of affection for one another. For whatever reason, in the life of the Apostle John, God moved him away from this church and brought him to another church where he spent some more years of his life. At some point in the course of time, people from this first church over here to which he wrote this letter came and visited the Apostle John. And he was absolutely delighted to see them, first of all, because he loved them, but even more than that, because he found that they were still walking in the truth. He found that they were still clinging to the things that they had been taught originally. They were still walking in love. They were still, as he put it, walking in the truth. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to go out to Wisconsin and see a friend of mine that I had led to Christ about 12 or 14 years ago. He was an absolute drug addict and ended up living with me for a little bit over a year. And I tried to share Christ with him. And, 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 and slowly but surely, he opened up his heart. And one day, he bowed his knee and gave his life to Christ. And now two weeks ago, I got to meet with him again and see that he's still walking in the truth. He's still loving Jesus Christ. He's still clinging to Christ. And there is no greater joy than to see someone you have led to Christ still walking with Christ so many years later. And I think that is why John felt so much rejoicing in his heart. But it seems that along with this good report that John received, that these beloved visitors also informed John that there were some teachers who had come along and were trying to influence the church away from Christ. They had come to the church and were now teaching things that were false and maybe even some were falling away. But one way or the other, there was a relentless attack against the church in terms of the teaching that was being brought to them. I told you a couple months ago when we started 1 John that these teachers were called Gnostics. The word Gnostic is built off the Greek word that means knowledge. And so these people were were people who taught that you needed to have a, a special kind of knowledge for this reason. Their fundamental understanding of reality was that all of material reality is evil and all of spiritual reality is good. So get that clear in your minds. Everything physical that you could see and feel and touch and taste, all of that was evil in the sight of these people. And the only thing that was good was spiritual reality. And so the point of life was to somehow escape the material reality, get into the spiritual reality by means of some special knowledge. They had different points of view as to what that knowledge was and how it was to be obtained. But every Gnostic in the Greek-speaking world agreed that the point of life was to escape the material, get to the spiritual through some means of special knowledge. Now, there were some Gnostics in the first century who claimed to be Christians and who taught that Jesus Christ was a revealer of this kind of knowledge. But they denied that He was the Lamb who had come to take away the sins of the world. For them, the reason Jesus came was to give us knowledge so that we could escape from material reality and get to spiritual reality through Him, or at least through the knowledge that He brought. For them, sin was not a problem in life, if there even was such a thing. Some of them taught that there was no such thing as sin. There was no such thing as moral good and moral evil. It was all just about material and spiritual. And so there was no need for a sacrificial Savior in their point of view. As I've been saying, their point of view is that you had to escape from this and attain to that. And so Jesus, rather than being a sacrificial lamb, became a revealer of knowledge to them. And furthermore, because they believed that material reality was evil, they taught that Jesus could not possibly have taken on flesh. 
that he could not have been a real human being because he was good and material reality is evil and there's no way that he could have actually been a, a material person then. So in their way of thinking, Jesus only seems to be a human being or to take on flesh. And so in the end, what we have is people who were very heavily and, and persistently pressing upon the church two major false teachings. One, that Christ was not the sacrificial lamb that had come to take away the sins of the world. And number two, that the incarnation never happened. That the Son of God never actually took on flesh. And obviously, these teachings were very problematic for the early church. They were a great threat to the church because they were pulling people away from Christ. And these people and their teachings had to be opposed. And so when John heard the report from his beloved visitors that these teachers were seeking to lead the church away from Christ, he was deeply troubled in his spirit, I'm sure of that. But more importantly, he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write a brief letter to persuade the church about things that they already knew. His aim was not to say anything new or to impress people with his depth of insight. He couldn't have cared less about that. He was looking at the church as the sheep of God. And as a shepherd who loved these sheep very much, he was riding with all the passion he could muster to tell them, cling to Christ. Do not be deceived by the deceivers, but cling to the true teachings as you received at the beginning. Cling to Jesus Christ in love. Again, he was not riding to say new stuff. He was not riding to say a lot of stuff. He was writing to plead with the people of God to cling to Christ. He was writing to chase the devil away. One of my pastors, David Livingston, likes to say that most of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. And his point is that we're always looking for new teachings. We're always looking for something to excite us. But he said if you would only obey what you already have, God would excite you. What you need is not new stuff. What you need is a heart that will submit to the stuff God has already given you. And so John wasn't writing to say new things. He was writing to stir up in his first readers and in us a passion to obey the things that we already know. The power of truth is revealed through obedience, not through originality. And so John wanted us to obey. He wanted that church to obey in the light of very real and serious threats that had come against the church. With that in mind, let's just work our way through this little letter now and let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen. There are two ways of interpreting what John means by the words lady and children there in verse 1. When he writes to the lady and the children, he could mean on the one hand that he's writing to a, a woman and to those who had either come to Christ under her ministry or who were somehow under her ministry in a more general sense. So the first option is that he's actually writing to a woman and to the, those who had come to Christ or were under her in Christ. The other option is that he's using the word lady metaphorically and he's writing to a church. And by the word children, what he means is the members of that church or the people who make up that church. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that this morning, but for a few reasons, I believe that the second option is true. First of all, there's some technical Greek stuff that I don't want to go into, but I think the way that the language lays out gives us clues that John is probably writing to a church and the people of that church. 
Secondly, in Revelation chapter 12, John talks about the church as a woman, and he talks about that woman having children. And so it's not at all odd that John would think about the church in these categories and address the church as a woman. And finally, you've already seen in First John that he's constantly calling the people in the church what? He's calling them children, and he's calling them little children. He does this all the time. And so it's normal for John to think of and speak to the children, the people of the church as children. And for those reasons, I tend to think that he's writing to a church and to the members of that church. I wouldn't die on that hill. It's okay if you disagree with me, but I just want you to be clear that that's what I'm assuming here. Whoever the recipients of this letter were, though, the more important thing for us to notice about John, Second uh, John 1, 1 through 3, is how much John loved these people. It's really crucial that we get that in his mind, he was not writing as a professional clergyman. He was not writing as an academic. He did not see these people as constituents or as donors or as anything of the sort. He saw them as the beloved children of God. They were probably his own children in the faith. They certainly looked to him as a father. And one way or the other, they were brothers and sisters in Christ and together a part of the bride of Christ, the very wife of Jesus. And so John is writing to these people not with a professional distance, but with a familial affection. In fact, with the affection of God. The bottom line is, he loved these people very much. In a couple of weeks, I'm actually going to come back and give a whole sermon to this subject, because I think it's really important that we press into this and understand the nature of what the church is supposed to be. With that divine affection, John writes this in verses 4 to 6. He said, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. As I said earlier, it seems that some of the beloved members of the church had come to visit John and that he was overjoyed not just to see them, but to see that they were walking in truth and clinging to Christ. And being so overjoyed with what he saw in their lives, he now wanted to write back to the whole church and say, do the same things that I'm seeing these people do here. It all really boils down to clinging to the things you received in the beginning. I want to see all of you doing that. He wrote to fan into flame the realities that he saw in the lives of these who had come to visit him. As I said before, his aim in the letter was not to say anything new, but to remind them of what they already knew so that they would continue to obey it. And the thing that they had already known, the thing that they had been taught and taught and taught and taught again, was that to love God is not simply an abstract feeling, but to love God is to obey His commandments. And now I write to you, dear lady, not as though this were a new commandment, but an old one that you've had from the beginning, that you would love one another. This is the commandment, that you love one another. He wants them to obey God and show their love for God through obedience. Jesus said in John 14.21, He said, Whoever has My commandments and obeys them... He or she, that's the one who loves me. So Jesus very clearly said that love is not a feeling you have for, for God. It may be filled with feeling, but love in the end is obedience. 
The one who has my commands and obeys them, he or she is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. So the first thing that this church knew, that they knew, that they knew, because they had been taught it over and over and over again, is that love for God is all about obedience to God. Whoever says they love God and does not submit to the commands of God is either a liar or they're self-deceived. It's that simple. Now having said that, John is very quick to add that the commandment of God is simply this, that we should love one another. So to love God is to obey His commandments. And what is the commandment of God? That we should love one another. It's just as Jesus said in Matthew 22.40. He said, on these two commandments, in other words, the commandment to love God and to love one another, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Every single thing that's written in the Bible hangs on, depends upon the commands to love. And what that means is, that the commandments to love are the foundation of all the other commandments of God, and the commandments to love are the consummation of all of the other commandments of God. Beloved, to know the truth in your mind and yet not to love is just not enough. It doesn't bring us far enough. To know the truth, to adhere to the truth, to acknowledge the truth, to teach the truth, but not to be loving is just as bad as outright rejecting the truth. We must have truth, we must cling to truth, but we must also love. And if we don't love, we show that we don't actually know the truth. We don't actually cling to the truth, because in the end, the truth is what? The truth is Jesus Christ Himself, right? Truth is profoundly relational in its nature. It's all about loving God. It's all about loving others. And so we must have these two things, truth and love. Just as with us, John's first readers had heard these things again and again and again. These things were not new to them. But John had written to stir up passion in their hearts that they may continue walking in the things that they already knew. You see that at the end of verse 6 there. He said the whole purpose is so that you would walk in it. There are times in our walks with Christ where our hearts grow cold toward God, where we feel numb toward Him, and frankly, if we're being honest, there are times where we're just bored with Christianity. We're bored with the whole thing. One of the main reasons why that happens is because we cease to walk in the truth. We cease to obey the commandments of God. We might be hearing, we might be acknowledging with our minds, but we're forgetting to actually walk in these things. If we would walk in the things of God, then the affections of God would come alive for us all over again. And so John wrote, not just so that they would hear the truth again, they'd already heard it again and again and again and again, but he wanted them to walk in these things. It's so important that we not only acknowledge truth, but that we walk in truth. And that is why John was writing. As I said earlier, the power of truth is found not just in the comprehension of it, but in the application of it. You know the truth, beloved, but the way you will discover the power of truth is by walking in the things of God. Those who are walking in the things of God, there is an aliveness about them. There is an aliveness about the truth inside of them. Because, as I said, truth, the power of truth is found in the application of it. Now with that in mind, John now addresses the specific situation that was facing the church in verses 7 through 11, and he says this, For, in other words, I said all of that because many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In other words, the Gnostics. 
Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting at all. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The word deceivers up there in verse 7 literally means those who wander. And it's referring to those who cause others to wander. And the way that they cause us to wander is by teaching us things about Jesus that might sound compelling but are completely false. The way they cause us to wander is by persuading us to, to cease clinging to Christ in truth. They persuade us to think that the things we've been taught and the things that have been revealed, the things we believe about Jesus are not really all that important and that they can be compromised. And the particular teachers that John had in mind here, as you know, had a vision of reality that was not true and had a vision of Jesus Christ that absolutely was not true. They were teaching about a Jesus who did not exist. And so in the light of a deadly threat like that to the church, John gave the church two particular bits of advice. First is in verse 8. First he said, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Just like our English word watch, the word here literally just means to look at something, watch it. But it can mean, just like it can in English, to watch out for yourself, to take care for yourself, to pay attention to yourself, to be vigilant, to be diligent, to be on guard, to be looking for enemies, to be looking for the, the nourishment, the nurture, the health of your own soul. And certainly that's what John means here. He's writing a brief letter to say to the church, what's happening with these teachers is not a small thing and you must be on the lookout Keep your eyes open. Be diligent about your own souls. Don't get lazy. Don't get lazy. Don't forget. Cling to Christ in truth and in love. And you have to just feel the passion with which John wrote. You see, these things to him were not just theoretical constructs. They were not just theological principles that he felt compelled to pass on to other people or to reiterate again and again and again. Rather for John, they were living realities because he had seen Jesus Christ face to face. This is the Apostle John, who while he was mending his nets by the sea, Jesus Christ physically came to him face to face and said, John, I want you to follow me. And, and John did that along with his brother James. This is John who walked with Jesus Christ for three years, watched Him do miracles, watched Him heal people, watched Him rebuke the Pharisees, watched Him teach the Word of God, watched Him walk on the sea. He was up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was only one of three people that literally saw with His own eyes the physical body of Jesus shine brightly as the sun. John saw it with his eyes. This was not theory to him. He saw it with his eyes. He was, the Bible says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a great, close, affectionate, passionate relationship with Jesus. He was the only apostle who did not forsake Jesus when he was crucified. He was the only one that was standing there at the foot of the cross the whole time. He literally heard with his own ears every word that Jesus uttered from the cross. He saw with his own eyes the Lord of the universe bleed out and die. He saw with his own eyes the sword go into the side of Jesus Christ. He watched the blood and the water spill out of Jesus' side. It wasn't a story that he heard. It was something that he saw happen. 
He was the first one to run to the tomb when the report had come that Jesus' body was gone and to go into there and see that the Lord of the universe wasn't there anymore, but that He had been raised from the dead. He was there when the Lord appeared to His disciples and spoke words to Thomas and to Peter and to the rest of them. He was there when Jesus Christ gave His final instructions to His disciples and then physically ascended into heaven right in the sight of them all. And He heard the the vocal words of the angel say in the same way that Jesus Christ has gone up into the air, so He will come back again. In other words, physically and visibly for all to see. John was there in the upper room praying and waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he saw with his own eyes when Jesus Christ fulfilled His promise and put the Holy Spirit into His beloved church so that they would have power to proclaim the Gospel throughout the world. And John became one of those who boldly proclaimed that Gospel. He was there face to face when heathen would come to Christ, when signs and wonders were done through the apostles to testify to the things of God. He was probably there in this little city to which he's writing right now. And he probably saw with his own eyes these complete unbelievers come to faith in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He had probably seen miracles happen in this very city. These things were very real to him. They were alive and living realities to Him. And these people were very precious to Him. And so, beloved, He wanted His readers to cling to Jesus Christ in truth and love because He loved them. And because these things were deeply precious to Him and deeply real to Him. And He knew heaven and hell were on the line and so He writes to them pleading as it were, Cling to Christ! Put both arms around Him. Squeeze as tight as you can. And cling to Christ in truth. Cling to Christ in love. Do not let go of Him. And the way that they were to cling to Christ was by clinging to what? Clinging to the teachings about Jesus Christ. You notice that there in verses 7-11. through The way to cling to Christ is to cling to the truth about Christ as you were originally taught. If a person does not continue clinging to the truth about Jesus, John says they do not have God. They never knew God. If a person does cling to the truth about Jesus, the true teachings about Jesus, they have both the Father and the Son. This is about as serious as it gets. From time to time, we're going to struggle with various doctrines, right? I don't know about you, but I have struggled with many, many doctrines in my life. Some of the things that I hold most dearly, the reason is because I struggled through them so deeply. I have literally lost sleep at night. I could not sleep because I was struggling with some teachings, with some doctrines in my life before. We are going to struggle. From time to time, we're going to question this or that aspect of Christianity. But in the end, if we don't cling to the truth about Jesus Christ the truth of Jesus Christ, we can be sure of this. We never knew God. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that we can love Jesus and then believe anything about Him that we want. That is not true. If you forsake the true teaching about Christ, you forsake Christ. Period. He is the truth. And so to forsake the truth is to forsake Him. To forsake Him is to forsake the truth. We must cling to Christ in truth. We must cling to the things that were once for all delivered to the saints through the lives of the apostles. So, John's first bit of counsel to these believers is watch yourselves. Be on guard. Be diligent for your souls. Cling to the teaching of Jesus Christ and so cling to Christ. His second bit of counsel is this. 
you should not have any level of fellowship whatsoever with those who are teaching such false things as this. You may not welcome them into your house. You may not even give them any kind of greeting at all. You must cut off all contact with such teachers. Now that might sound like a harsh bit of advice, but let me just say this. It is one thing for a person or a group of teachers to struggle with the doctrine, but to remain humble and teachable before God and before the authority of the church. And it's quite another thing for people to come to the place in their lives where they actually dedicate their lives to advancing lies about Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Is one thing for a person to struggle. It's another thing for a person to reject the truth and begin advancing lies about Jesus in the name of Jesus. And that's what these people were doing. They were advancing lies about Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. And John just called a spade a spade. He said, they are not what you think they are. They are deceivers. They are antichrists. And you must not, you may not have fellowship with them. I think we are free to struggle and debate many things within the family of God because we don't understand our Father or His ways perfectly, but we are not free to reject the central truths about our Father and about His family and about His truth and think that we can still have fellowship with Him. We cannot. We cannot think that these things are not a big deal because they are a big deal and we can't even have fellowship with people who go there. Let me give you a a modern example here. I've been thinking a lot lately about the Mormon church because they really seem to be on a rampage trying to promote themselves around the country. They've got this big advertising campaign that's out there. They've got a major presidential candidate. They've got Glenn Beck out there on the radio every day who's, who's... using words like God, generic words, but he doesn't mean at all by God what you and I mean by God. They're very rich. They're very purposeful in what they do. In fact, they just built a temple right over near our house, in fact. So I've I've just had this on my mind a lot. So I want to use them as an example. They teach a lot of false things about Christ. A lot of false things about the Father, about Christ, about the nature of evil, about the destiny of creation, about just about everything you could imagine. Let me just tell you, A few things, just a handful. They teach that God the Father, who they like to call Elohim, that's one of the Hebrew words for God, they like to call Him Elohim. They teach that He is a spirit being who populated this planet by having celestial sex with His wife, whoever that is, and that as they had sex and had babies, that's the way that these beings sort of populated the planet. They teach that two of those babies were Jesus and Satan. And so in this way, they teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers. They teach that the Lord of glory, the Lord of the universe, is a brother of Satan. It's unbelievable heresy. They teach that Joseph Smith is on par with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the day of judgment, they teach that you will literally answer to Elohim, Jesus Christ, and Joseph Smith. He put himself on par with God. said that you will answer to him just as you will answer to God. They say that if we follow the teachings of the Mormon church and have a nice little Mormon family as they say we should, that you or I could, when we die, go into the spirit world and have celestial sex with our wife forever and ever, have our own planet, and we can be God over our own planet in the same way that Elohim is the God of this planet. That's what they teach. you believe that? For some of you, this is brand new. You might even feel shocked 
to hear what I'm saying. This is just a smidgen of what the Mormon church teaches. And I know that it's truly what they teach because I've really looked into these things. Kim and I, a number of years ago, actually went to the temple in Salt Lake City and we spent four hours there, two hours of which we spent with an elder grilling him about everything that we had heard. And point by point by point by point by point, he said, yes, we believe that. Yes, we teach that. Yes, we believe that. Yes, we teach that. They're absolute and total heretics and we may not have fellowship with them. They may be nice people, but according to the standards that John puts out here, they are antichrists, they are deceivers. We must reject their teaching. We must reject them. We are not allowed to have fellowship with them. We cannot welcome them into our homes in terms of fellowship. We cannot give them any greeting at all. As with John's first readers, we are not free to fellowship with people who promote lies about Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. We cannot because they are working for the devil. They are not working for our Father. Now, we must love them. We must pray for them. We must seek with all of our heart to persuade them. We must desire their salvation. I don't desire their cursing. But we cannot have fellowship with them. I ride my bike by the Mormon temple out there on 39 in Otsego all the time. And almost every time I go by it, I pray both against them and for them. I pray, Father, stop their lies and save their souls. I want the lies to stop, but I don't want them to go to hell. But in the meantime, I am not allowed to have fellowship with them. Pray for them? Yes. Love them? Absolutely. Try to persuade them? We, we should. We better. But have fellowship with them? John says that we absolutely cannot. Because if we have fellowship with them, John says we're taking part in their wicked works. Even to greet them is to take part in their wicked lies that are spreading around the world. To promote Glenn Beck is to promote the Mormon church. We can't do that. We cannot do that. I don't care if you like his conservative political views. There's a bigger world at stake here. And that's the truth of heaven and hell. And he's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. We cannot have fellowship with him. What does it mean when John says that we take part in their wicked works? I think it means this. That when we embrace liars in the name of Christ, we, we endorse their lies. When you welcome a liar into your life, you're saying that their lies are not that big of a deal. And essentially, you endorse the lie, you take part in the wicked work. Now the Mormons are just one example, but the point is, when people are promoting lies in the name of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, we may not have fellowship with them. We may love them, we may seek to persuade them, but we may not, we must not have fellowship with them. Now in the context of John's world, you have to understand, this was not an easy word for the church to hear. Because they knew these teachers that he was talking about personally. You may remember from 1 John, these people were originally inside the church. They were part of the church. They had seemed to come to Christ underneath the apostles' ministry, but at some point they left off. And John said the reason they went out from us is because they never belonged to us in the first place. In other words, they went out from us because they never actually believed in Christ to begin with. And now they've come back to try to deceive because they are deceivers and antichrist. But now, here John is saying this to the church, but I promise you there are people in that church who still had contact with these teachers and who probably still liked them, who probably still loved them and still had affection for them. And John is saying, listen, I know you have affection, but you must cut yourself off from them. Because what you don't see is that they're deceivers, they're antichrists. Again, pray for them, yes. 
seek to persuade them? Yes. Have fellowship with them? No. We may not do that. We must not do that. So John writes to press as hard as he can, as briefly, as succinctly, but as hard as he can on the church to say, listen, don't forget what you were taught in the beginning. Don't forget. You must love God with all of your heart, which means obeying His commandments. And His commandment is that you love one another. You must cling to Jesus Christ in truth and in love. That is the punch that this little letter is trying to pack. He's not trying to be new. He's not trying to impress anybody. He's writing as a shepherd of God who cares about the church of God. And he's seeking to persuade them to do the things that they already know to do. You can see there in verses 12 and 13 that he had more that he wanted to say to these people. But he rather would do it face to face. I'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But somehow, by the Holy Spirit, John knew that it was time to stop writing. He had already written a lot. He's got four, five things in the Bible. He's got the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. He knew how to write a lot. But somehow, by the Holy Spirit, he knew it was time to quit here. Time to stop. Enough has been said. The point has been made. The punch has been packed. The coals of the church have been fanned into flame. And now he put his pen down. He handed the letter to these precious souls to deliver the letter to the church. And he trusted in the God who elects his people to now protect the flock of God. Would you look back with me at at verse 1? I need to flip back in my notes because I didn't redo this. But look at verses 1 through 3. There where John says that the reason He loves them is because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ in truth and in love. Listen, John had an absolute assurance that God would protect His church all the way to the end. He said to them, don't lose what we have worked for, but he did not have the view that they could lose their salvation. That was not his point of view. He had a very deep assurance that the God who saved them would also cling tightly to them and that no one would be able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. That's John's theology. But one of the ways that God keeps us in His bosom, if you will, is by persuading us to cling back to Him in truth and in love. And so He's pressing upon the church. Cling to Jesus Christ in truth. Cling to Jesus Christ in love. And that's the message for us today. There, to this day, there are many deceivers in this world trying to pull us away from Christ. Make no mistake about it, we are in a spiritual war and the devil wants to destroy us. He does not want to annoy us, he wants to destroy us. And as soon as we walk out this door, he'll begin his work. What's the antidote? What's the answer? Cling to Christ in truth and in love. You already know this. Some of you have heard this for more years than I've even been saved. But the point is to walk in what you already know. So let me just ask a couple of questions and then we'll pray. How are you doing with these things? Are you clinging to Jesus Christ in truth? Do you understand that the truth about Jesus Christ really matters? And are you pursuing the truth of Jesus Christ? Or to put it another way, are you seeking to know Jesus as who He really is? It's one thing to believe things that you think you know about Him. It's another thing to see Jesus for who He really is. Are you pursuing Jesus for who He really is? Are you pursuing truth? Are you entertaining 
false teaching and and the deceiving spirits that are bringing those false teachings in your life? Are you letting people come a little too close to you and influence you? Are there deceivers? Are there antichrists who are seeking to draw you away from Christ and you're kind of making a home in your life for them? Are you doing that? Or are you a person who really is seeking truth, but maybe you're forgetting the love piece? Maybe you're forgetting that the whole point of truth is love and you know it all up here, but you're not very loving this, this way. Are you there in your life? Or maybe you're one of those who is truly clinging to Christ in truth and in love and you just need to fan these things into flame. I don't know where you are. I hardly know where I'm at right now in this time of my life. I, I've been praying to God that He would help me see me as He sees me. I know what I think about where I'm at, but I want to see where He thinks I'm at. Because the truth of the matter is all of us have growing to do in these things. All of us need to learn to cling to Christ a little bit tighter, to squeeze a little bit tighter, to love Him a little bit more, to, to let go of things that are, that are less important. All of us have growing to do that way. All of us have to learn to love this way more and more and more. You know, whenever I pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive me in the way that I forgive others, I tremble. I tremble. If God treats me the way I treat others, I have problems. I have a lot of growing to do in loving one another. I have a lot of growing to do. But praise be to God. He will complete this work that He began in all of us. And so I think the word for us today is let us all grow in these things. We know them in our heads, but let's grow in them in our lives. Let me pray now to that end. And I pray that even this day we would help one another to grow in love and grow in truth. Father, as I always feel when I get done preaching, I am just so thankful for Your Word because... David's words are true, that it is a lamp to the feet and a light to the path. If it wasn't for Your Word, Lord, life would be like walking through a really thick fog. We would know that we were alive. We would know that there were things out there. But we would have no idea where to go. We would be stumbling all the time. We wouldn't know, are we going north, south, east, west? We would have no orientation at all. And so I thank You, Father, for shining the floodlight of Your truth into our lives by the Word of God, for burning the fog away, and for allowing us to see things as they are. God, please fan into flame the things that we already know now. Please teach us to cling to You in truth, to pursue You in truth, and teach us to love one another as You have loved us. We thank You, Father, for Second John. We don't marginalize it in our Bibles. We acknowledge that it was breathed out by You, and I want to thank You personally for giving this letter to our church today. Thank You for bringing this Word to us, Father. And now I pray that You would use it to accomplish all the purposes that You set out to accomplish. In Jesus' great and gracious name I ask these things. Amen.